Hey, everybody. It's Dr. Brad here from Macros, Inc. Super excited that you guys are at the show today. I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you. Really appreciate you tuning in. If you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions for the show, drop them in the comments. Make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And make sure that you hit the alert bell so you're notified the second we drop a new episode. Otherwise, thank you guys so much. I hope you're going to enjoy the show today. Genetically modified organisms have been a hotbed of discussion amongst the blogosphere, internet forums, and scientific community. For a long time, it was a topic one could consider a minor issue and really didn't need that much attention. However, given the recent changes in the trajectory of the human population, our climate, and advances in genetic engineering, this topic needs to be at the forefront of scientific and sort of even moral and ethical discussions. Historically, the conversations surrounding GMOs have involved scare rhetoric, faulty logic, appeals to nature, and caused a substantial polarization, i.e. GMOs are good or GMOs are evil. What we really need is an honest, nuanced conversation about the topic, because it is as far from black and white as one can get. Let's talk about the empirical evidence against GMOs. A thorough and critical examination of the scientific literature reveals zero, and let me repeat that, zero evidence that GMO foods pose any measurable health risk. There's over 30 years of research regarding GMO foods and health and safety concerns, and there's no consistent coherent body of literature that indicates that there are measurable detrimental health effects in humans. Now, I remain open to any evidence, so if you have any data that's in humans of the actual food, please send it my way. Thus, much of what we're going to cover in this podcast is going to relate to the philosophical and logical arguments against GMOs, as those are what we can actually have a well-founded, well-reasoned, rational discussion about. Let's start with the naturalistic fallacy. First order of business is to address one of the most common logical fallacies that occurs during a conversation about GMOs, the naturalistic fallacy. The naturalistic fallacy was introduced by British philosopher G.E. Moore in his 1903 book Principia Ethica, or Principia Ethica. Essentially, this states that because something is good, or says something is natural, it is good, is a fallacy. This is the appeal to nature argument, stating that natural is good and artificial is bad. Easy examples to highlight this fallacy are the bubonic plague, AIDS, and natural toxins. Additionally, things like polio vaccines, organ transplant, and emergency medicine are also not natural, but they definitely fall into the good category. GMOs are claimed to be inherently bad because they're not natural. Clearly, this charge is guilty of committing the naturalistic fallacy, and I think we need to move on from such a parochial argument. This is one of the primary arguments used in the GMOs are not healthy argument. Additionally, there's the topic of transgenic organisms in which genes from one species are inserted into an entirely different species. For example, a gene encoding a fluorescent protein might be inserted into a fish to make it glow. This is actually super cool. It doesn't appear to have any negative health consequences on the fish, so it's kind of a funny parlor trick. But this has also been leveraged as an argument against GMOs, stating that genes from a different species ought to not be incorporated incorporated into a different one. This is also not a reasonable argument. In fact, the human genome contains a massive swath of genes from organisms, mostly viruses. Transgenic manipulations of genomes occur all the time in nature and are a part of evolutionary biology. 
and may even be involved in beneficial adaptations of the human species. The status quo bias. One of the other main arguments used against GMOs is the status quo bias. This is an emotional bias. It's a preference for the current state of affairs. The current baseline or status quo is taken as a reference point, and any change from that baseline is perceived as a loss. I prefer to discuss the status quo bias as stated by Kahneman. The status quo bias is an individual's tendency to prefer to remain at the status quo. It's similarly attributed to loss aversion. It is assumed that the loss of the status quo option looms larger than the gain of an alternative option. Departure from the status quo can either be disastrous or prosperous. Oftentimes, remaining in the status quo is not in the best interest of the human race. For example, Homo sapiens sapiens, that's us, lived in what can be described as abhorrent conditions for millennia. Lack of food, inability to avoid the elements, infection, death and childbirth, etc. As substantial changes had not been made, such as control over fire, domestication of food, sources, building of homes, intervention of clothes, the Enlightenment, and the germ theory of disease, our species would objectively be in a worse situation than it is now. When we examine the GMOs or a departure of current food practices and their unknown future consequences, we fall victim to this bias. It doesn't really paint GMOs in a correct light either, nor is it a useful argument for or against them. GMOs is an information technology. The third main issue that arises in discussions about GMOs is they're not often well understood. There are important aspects of GMOs that we need to flesh out in order to understand them. The first concept is that GMOs are, in essence, an information technology, specifically gene selection and gene modification which we have been applying for millennia, with the caveat that we've had an exponential in growth in our control and application in this technology over the last 30 years. So let's explore this concept further. Let's talk about historical gene selection. Humans, as a species, have been genetically modifying organisms since basically our inception, and we need to acknowledge that genetically modifying our food sources in ourselves has been an integral part of our evolution as species. In fact, it began when we as humans selected mates based on certain traits and expanded when we domesticated animals and plants and began selecting the specific favorable traits of their livestock and agriculture. The natural, organic, non-GMO apples, broccoli, lettuce, and corn that you buy at the store have actually gone through millennia of trait selection through selective breeding practices. By definition, those foods are genetically modified from their original form. The genetic modification of our food sources for 99% of human history occurred by selectively breeding plants or animals with desired traits hoping for specific outcomes. These changes often took several generations to manifest to an appreciable, meaningful degree in an entire species. These modifications also occurred within the same gene pool and relied on the manipulation of other existing mutations or the exploitation of an advantage, advantageous de novo mutation. This stands in stark contrast to current approaches to genetic modification of organisms, specifically the use of transgenes and newly synthesized artificial genes. So let's talk about current genetic manipulation. The recent discovery of DNA, genes, and advances in molecular biology have given us control over the genomes of organisms not previously available to mankind. 
This has resulted in an exponential increase in our ability to modify the genomes of plants and animals, accelerating the changes of our food sources. With the rapid changes, whether they are beneficial or maladaptive, we'll have to discuss in a minute. But for now, it's sufficient to say that these changes occur in a timescale incongruent with the rate of our own evolution as a species, right? We can evolve food much faster than we can evolve ourselves. One of the most overlooked aspects of current gene manipulation, especially given the recent advances in gene editing technology via the CRISPR-Cas system, is the degree to which our control over gene manipulation affects the outcomes. It's often stated that traditional gene manipulation, like selective breeding, is somehow safer than direct genome manipulation. To me, this feels like a false conclusion. The difference is that selective breeding or mutagenic techniques tend to result in large swaths of genes being swapped or altered. Current technology and gene modification, in contrast, enables us to insert a plant's genome or a single gene or a few of them from another species of plant or even bacteria, viruses, or animals. Supporters argue that this precision makes the technology much less likely to produce surprises. Most plant molecular biologists also say that in the highly unlikely case that an unexpected health threat emerged from a new GM plant, scientists could quickly identify and eliminate it. We know where the gene goes and can measure the activity of every single gene around it, says Dr. Robert Goldberg, a molecular biologist at the University of California, Los Angeles. We can show exactly which changes occur and which don't. I personally resonate with the idea that selective breeding is much less in our control than direct genome manipulation and that advances to be made in the future ought to implore direct gene manipulation. However, I don't feel like we know enough about third, second and third order effects of gene-to-gene interactions that we can safely claim we can show exactly which changes occur and which don't. You know, one of the arguments that we often hear against GMOs is that the introduction of a novel chemical or protein will prove harmful as we're not used to metabolizing it. This is a really inaccurate, ineffective claim. A very simple thought experiment fleshes this out quite easily. Imagine someone of virtually pure African ancestry. Their entire genetic lineage is from the African continent. This person nor his genes have been exposed to foods that originate in South America or North America. If said individual moves to the United States and consumes blueberries, is it a valid assumption that the blueberries will cause this person to be stricken with disease? No. Right, the introduction of a novel compound or protein is not an issue per se, it's the specific nature of that compound. Now let's talk about the fair criticisms of GMOs. When I started preparing for this podcast, I really wanted to make sure I was intellectually honest as possible. And I want to spend some time reviewing the arguments against GMOs. I can imagine all of the arguments against it. And when I was doing research for this, I came across a swath of arguments ranging from stupid to dangerous to cogent and thoughtful. And I want to focus on the arguments that, you know, are actually substantive. Uncontrolled propagation the idea that GMOs contaminate forever. Modifying the genomes of organisms and releasing them into a population without a genetic kill switch is the equivalent of firing a gun. You just, you can't take it back, right? When you introduce a novel genome into a population and it's bred with current organisms, you sort of effectively introduce that genome into the gene pool forever. 
unless some fluke mutation renders it inactive or inert after the first generation. While we can predict the effect of the gene on the initial phenotype, and likely the phenotypes of the first, second, and third generations, we really lose our ability to predict how that gene will interact in many generations down the road. Now, we really need to assess what this means. It may mean that our intervention leads to some catastrophic collapse due to unforeseen circumstances. This has been argued by Nassim Taleb in his paper on the precautionary principle. I think he makes a salient point about the fact that we ought to be cautious in how we use this technology and any biotechnology. But I do think in his paper he misses some key points that render his argument not quite as solid as it is sold in his paper. Conversely, this technology could produce a phenotype that produces greater crop yield and becomes a staple that saves a large part of the world's population during a famine. Additionally, we just don't know that following the natural course of current crop evolution, that it dies out due to some fluke phenomenon, right? Kind of like the movie Interstellar. Based on what we currently know, I kind of find it foolish to make a bold, strong decision about what GMOs will do a priori or before we do anything, right? Speculations at this point ought to be tempered and carefully thought out on both sides, right? Scared rhetoric, doomsday proclamations, and life-saving claims about GMOs are not well supported by any of the current data. We just don't know what the future is going to look like. The most honest assessment is that we need to acknowledge that contaminating the gene pool forever is something we need to think very carefully about before we introduce any sort of novel gene into plants and do due diligence in attempting to project out as far as we can. Now, here's another issue that may arise from GMOs, and I think we're starting to see this already. Perhaps one of the most compelling issues with GMOs is the misuse and abuse of intellectual property. Genetic manipulation can substantially reduce the cost of farming and increase prop- crop yields, increase the quality of life of farmers, and reduce the cost of goods for the public. However, corporate and individual greed cannot be overlooked, and many companies that manufacture seeds for GMO plants often raise prices and often make plants sterile, so farmers must repurchase seeds at exorbitant costs year after year. There are cases where the opposite of this, where GMO technology has been designed with noble intentions and government regulations and red tape have prevented its widespread gifting to third world countries. Golden rice is an example of this, right? Golden rice was created in a lab to be high in beta carotene to help really solve nutrient deficiency in third world countries. It took roughly a decade to get through government regulations in order to be distributed in places like Africa. Right? Issues like these could be solved through legislation and laws that regulate GMO technology, their uses, and enact statutes, much like those in junk production where special cases can be fast-tracked. The other major issue that we need to think about when we think about GMOs is our overconfidence in meeting food supply. It's been argued that GMOs will be the only way to meet the growing demand for the food supply. Based on current technology and an analysis of all the contributing factors, I think it's safe to say that just GMO technology alone, as it currently is, will not solve a food shortage problem if the world population continues to grow at the same exponential rate and our usage of fossil fuels, land, water, and other natural resources continue at its current rate. Overconfidence in a singular technology may be a contributing factor to a future food shortage. 
Now, this is pure speculation on my part because there's no good, solid evidence to support this, but we just don't know. So how should we really view GMOs? I think categorizing them as either good or bad is a rather nearsighted perspective. GMO technology ought to be viewed just as that, a technology. It can be utilized to buoy the human race forward as we begin to encounter unforeseen obstacles. For example, GMO technology may be critical in adapting to changes in climate, as the climate may change faster than plants and animals can naturally adapt. We may require GMO technology to create plants that thrive on Martian soil if slash when we become an interplanetary species. Conversely, engineering plants to display massive herbicide resistance or to profit off of GMO IP at the expense of farmers may be an abuse of the technology. In reality, it needs to be viewed as a technology and how it is applied on a case-by-case basis. So, That's my view on genetically modified organisms. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. If there's anything in here that you agree with, comment. If there's anything you disagree with, comment. Let me know your thoughts. Um, This is obviously a really complex topic. A lot of nuance. Let me know what your thoughts are. Would love to hear from you guys. Um, Just drop them in the comments below. Make sure you subscribe. I think it's over here on this this side or this side. Make sure you click the alert bell so you're notified every time a new episode comes out. I'm Dr. Brad. I'm out of here. I'll see you guys later.